Because if you get in the habit of moving expansively, there's no limit to how expansive you can become. If you are in the habit of contracting, Swami writes, there's no limit to how contracted you can become. Except, as he said, you can never actually extinguish your consciousness, because that's impossible. But you can become suicidal and go to hell for a while. You know, eventually come out. Karma's just karma, eventually come out. Because it's too boring. You just can't stand it. You have to come out of it. But we're trying, you know, money is about expansion, about expanding your consciousness. So if you want to expand what you have in your life, start expanding. I've, I've observed that whatever is the big issue, certainly in my own life, is also the little issue. Right? Whatever is happening in a big pattern, usually the seeds of it are in my little responses to life. And the big one is too big for me to deal with, but I can start unraveling it around the edges. Well, we described it as like, he said, you should nibble away at delusion around the edges, right? Just the, the little parts that you can actually touch. If you have a tendency, oh, I have a tendency to get kind of hyper about things. So I find myself, you know, just doing the dishes or, or trying to leave, uh, to come somewhere when I have an appointment and I, I feel myself winding up. You know, I'm just making a piece of toast. And really, it's going to take as long as it's going to take. But the habit of becoming a little overwrought is right there. So I can't necessarily deal with it when, you know, some gigantic thing is happening, but I can start breaking the habit when it's just a piece of toast, right? So whatever you feel is your big picture, don't worry about the big picture. Just start reversing it in the little ways. And it's always about, again, if you think about it, it's always about being a little more expansive, including something else in your reality some other person, some other principle, uh, somebody else's interests, some other possibility, creativity, expansion. Just keep moving like that, and, and then you get into the flow. And you don't have to think about it. One last thought, and then I'll leave it. I love this. He said, once you really recognize that you're working in a greater intelligence, it's often better not to plan too carefully how you're going to get where you're trying to go. That's quite contrary to a lot of advice that's given out nowadays. But he, he doesn't explain it in great detail, but you have great clarity about where you're going. Because you have clarity about the energy and the consciousness. You have clarity about the energy and the consciousness, and you don't have to worry so much about the details. If you bring it all the way down to the material form, you can't be as creative. Because matter becomes fixed. Energy and consciousness is very fluid, and he puts it, you can very much adapt. You know, success in business and with money is all about, about adaptability. The person who can just sense that things are about to change. It's time to go into a new direction. And that works if you are completely committed in your direction, you're completely committed as to who you are and what you're trying to do, but you don't worry so much about the details because the details manifest out of that energy. If you try to fix the details first, now that doesn't mean people are different. I know my husband David has, has handled money for so many incarnations that when he was first turning some of the uh, financial responsibilities of this place over to other people a few years ago, he used to just come in at night, at night and sort of touch the checkbooks. And the woman handed would sort of see that he pilfered in her desk and she didn't like it all that much. And he finally just said, look, he said, I just kind of have to come in and hold the checkbooks, you know, just kind of spin them and just, because he just had to get close enough to him to be able to feel what the energy was. He tried to, he ran the publications business that had gone to the village for a while, and then the woman who took it over after him, he tried to train her 
And she finally had to go to someone else to be trained because she didn't have the intuition he built up. You know, the intuition that could just cause him to know. He, she had to get a lot more systems down in order to have clarity. So don't misunderstand me. If you're not clear, take the trouble and the time and put out the energy until you have clarity. But don't think that details are really what you need. What you need is clarity. And if details help give you clarity, Yogananda's advice for giving a, a lecture was, he said, you know, study your subject, make notes, this was like for a Sunday sermon, make notes, have a few stories, you know, get it all clear, and then fold up your outline and don't look at it. Which is to say, get very clear about what you're doing and then let the inspiration flow. You see the difference? But, but if you don't get clear about what you're doing, you won't have the inspiration anymore. I'll, I'll give you one more example of this, then I'll close. Years ago, when I was first starting to travel and lecture, I was traveling for six weeks, and this woman, Shivani, who now lives in Assisi, and I were traveling together. And uh, she was very knowledgeable about Yogananda's healing methods and was very interested in the subject. And so she, we had a, a dual program. She would do some of the programs, I would do some of them. She did all this whole program about healing, which I never put any energy into because she, she did. It didn't interest me as an interest her besides it was her area. One, one or two days into the lecture for her husband, who was doing a huge business project, just got into a very difficult situation with a terrible client. And she really had to leave and go and help it. So she drives off. And I'm there with this whole program. And since we were alternating, I mean, I was free to do it. So I thought, well, this will be fun. So I studied a little bit. I looked at her notes were very different. I couldn't even understand her notes. Um, and, and, we, and so we had this program, the first program. And you know, I'm glib. And when I say I don't know it, that doesn't mean I know nothing. It's just that I didn't know it well enough to feel really confident. But it was very interesting to me because, as you can see, I speak spontaneously and just kind of whatever comes, and I've always done it this way. But I didn't know the subject. So I would, I would start talking, and I would get this intuitive sense of where the subject should go. But I didn't have any information. <laughs> so I'd sort of feel it, and this would be like this little game was going on in my head. Well, gee, I'm really sorry that's what you want to hear, but I can't tell you that. I can only tell you this. Right? And then I, I, had, I had to guide it mentally. I had to guide the talk mentally because there were only certain places I could go because I didn't know. Now, many other subjects, I can guide it intuitively because I know it. And how do I know it? Because I spent years and years and years studying, thinking, discussing it, and studying and thinking and discussing it. You know, it's not. I, I, I wasn't born with this. I mean, this understanding of the teachings, but little I have. I've worked really hard because I love it. But I didn't know it. So it was so clear to me that, yes, I was flowing with the energy, but my ability to flow with the energy was based on very steady, solid work, which I hadn't done. Right? So that's the balance point we're looking for with this. This is no excuse. You have to be very clear and full of information and then and then put it aside and go with the flow. Right? And that, that's what we're that's what we're looking for. That's the expansive direction. It's contractive not to study your field, whatever it is. Many people say they have an intuitive feeling they should be a healer, but they're not studying healing. 
you know, they're not doing it. They're just sort of waiting for it to happen. But good healers know a lot, a lot about a lot, because they need to be able to, to do what needs to be done. They, they need to be able to follow the intuition because there's material to come behind it, you see. Now that, I sort of slightly lost where that was coming from, but maybe you all can remember. Just in terms of, oh, I see he was saying, follow the energy, don't, don't think that the power comes from having it all worked out ahead of time. But have the strength of your understanding so that, that you can then follow the power. All right? I think that will do us for tonight. Thank you very much. Because if you get in the habit of moving expansively, there's no limit to how expansive you can become. If you're in the habit of contracting, Swami writes, there's no limit to how contracted you can become. Except, as he said, you can never actually extinguish your consciousness, because that's impossible. But you can become suicidal and go to hell for a while. You know, eventually you come out. Karma's just karma, eventually you come out. Because it's too boring. You just can't stand it. You have to come out of it. But we're trying, you know, money is about expansion, about expanding your consciousness. So if you want to expand what you have in your life, start expanding. I've, I've observed that whatever is the big issue, certainly in my own life, is also the little issue. Right? Whatever is happening in a big pattern, usually the seeds of it are in my little responses to life. And the big one is too big for me to deal with, but I can start unraveling it around the edges. So when we described this like, he said, you should nibble away at delusion around the edges, right? Just the, the little parts that you can actually touch. If you have a tendency, oh, I have a tendency to get kind of hyper about things. So I find myself, you know, just doing the dishes or, or trying to leave, uh, to come somewhere when I have an appointment and I, I feel myself winding up. You know, I'm just making a piece of toast. And really, it's going to take as long as it's going to take. But the habit of becoming a little overwrought is right there. So I can't necessarily deal with it when, you know, some gigantic thing is happening, but I can start breaking the habit when it's just a piece of toast, right? So whatever you feel is your big picture, don't worry about the big picture. Just start reversing it in the little ways. That it's always about, again, if you think about it, it's always about being a little more expansive, including something else in your reality some other person, some other principle, uh, somebody else's interests, some other possibility, creativity, expansion. Just keep moving like that, and, and then you get into the flow. And you don't have to think about it. One last thought, and then I'll leave it. I love this. He said, once you really recognize that you're working in a greater intelligence, it's often better not to plan too carefully how you're going to get where you're trying to go. That's quite contrary to a lot of advice that's given out nowadays. But he, he doesn't explain it in great detail, but you have great clarity about where to go. Because you have clarity about the energy and the consciousness. You have clarity about the energy and the consciousness, and you don't have to worry so much about the details. If you bring it all the way down to the material form, you can't be as creative. Because matter becomes fixed. Energy and consciousness is very fluid, and as he puts it, you can very much adapt. You know, success in business and with money is all about, about adaptability. The person who can just sense that things are about to change. It's time to go into a new direction. And that works if you are completely committed in your direction, you're completely committed as to who you are and what you're trying to do, 
but you don't worry so much about the details because the details manifest out of that energy. If you try to fix the details first, now that doesn't mean people are different. I know my husband David has, has handled money for so many incarnations that when he was first turning some of the uh, financial responsibilities of this place over to other people a few years ago, he used to just come in at night, at night and sort of touch the checkbooks. And the woman handling would sort of see that he pilfered in her desk and she didn't like it all that much. And he finally just said, look, he said, I just kind of have to come in and hold the checkbooks, you know, just kind of spin them and just, because he just had to get close enough to him to be able to feel what the energy was. He tried to, he ran the publications business at Ananda Village for a while, and then the woman who took it over after him, he tried to train her. And she finally had to go to someone else to be trained because she didn't have the intuition he built up. You know, the intuition that could just cause him to know. He, she had to get a lot more systems down in order to have clarity. So don't misunderstand me. If you're not clear, take the trouble and the time to put out the energy until you have clarity. But don't think that details are really what you need. What you need is clarity. And if details help give you clarity, Yogananda's advice for giving a, a lecture was, he said, you know, study your subject, make notes, this was like for a Sunday sermon, make notes, have a few stories, you know, get it all clear, and then fold up your outline and don't look at it. Which is to say, get very clear about what you're doing and then let the inspiration flow. You see the difference? But, but if you don't get clear about what you're doing, you won't have the inspiration either. I'll, I'll give you one more example of this, then I'll close. Years ago, when I was first starting to travel and lecture, I was traveling for six weeks, and this woman, Shivani, who now lives in Assisi, and I were traveling together. And uh, she was very knowledgeable about Yogananda's healing methods and was very interested in the subject. And so she, we had a, a dual program. She would do some of the programs, I would do some of them. She did all this whole program about healing, which I never put any energy into because she, she did. It didn't interest me as it interested her besides it was her hair. One, one or two days into the lecture for her husband, who was doing a huge business project, just got into a very difficult situation with a terrible client, and she really had to leave and go and help it. So she drives off, and I'm there with this whole program, and since we were alternating, I mean, I was free to do it. So I thought, well, this will be fun. So I studied a little bit. I looked at her notes. were very different. I couldn't even understand her notes. Um, and, and, we, and so we had this program, the first program. And you know, I'm glib. And when I say I don't know it, that doesn't mean I know nothing. It's just that I didn't know it well enough to feel really confident. But it was very interesting to me because, as you can see, I speak spontaneously and just kind of whatever comes, and I've always done it this way. But I didn't know the subject. So I would, I would start talking, and I would get this intuitive sense of where the subject should go. But I didn't have any information. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd sort of feel it, and this would be like this little game was going on in my head. Well, gee, I'm really sorry that's what you want to hear, but I can't tell you that. I can only tell you this. Right? And then I, I, had, I had to guide it mentally. I had to guide it to talk mentally because there were only certain places I could go because I didn't know. Now, many other subjects, I can guide it intuitively because I know it. And how do I know it? Because I've spent years and years and years studying, thinking, discussing it, and studying and thinking and discussing it. You know, it's not 
I, I, I wasn't born with this. I mean, this understanding of the teachings, what little I have. I've worked really hard because I love it. But I didn't know it. So it was so clear to me that, yes, I was flowing with the energy, but my ability to flow with the energy was based on very steady, solid work, which I hadn't done. Right? So that's the balance point we're looking for with this. This is no excuse. You have to be very clear and full of information and then and then put it aside and go with the flow. Right? And that, that's what we're that's what we're looking for. That's the expansive direction. It's contractive not to study your field, whatever it is. Many people say they have an intuitive feeling they should be a healer, but they're not studying healing. You know, they're not doing it. They're just sort of waiting for it to happen. But good healers know a lot. A lot about a lot because they need to be able to, to do what needs to be done. They, they need to be able to follow the intuition because there's material to come behind it, you see. Now, that I sort of slightly lost where that was coming from, but maybe you all can remember. Just in terms of, oh, I see, he was saying, follow the energy, don't, don't think that the power comes from having it all worked out ahead of time, but have the strength of your understanding. So that you can then follow the flow. All right? I think that will do us for tonight. Thank you very much. Let me just kind of clear the furniture here so that I can deal with what's going on. Jaren, do you want to just move that somewhere? I'll take this one off. Do you remember? Okay. Remember why we're doing these? Because magnetism is everything, right? The more magnetism we have, the more we have of everything. So we have to create magnetism. That's good. Okay. I'm awake and ready. I'm awake and ready. I'm awake and ready. I'm awake and ready. You're convincing me. Okay. Okay. I'm positive, energetic, enthusiastic. I'm positive, energetic, enthusiastic. I am positive, energetic, enthusiastic. Be glad, my brain. Be wise, be strong. Be glad, my brain. Be wise, be strong. Be glad, my brain. Be wise, be strong. Awake, rejoice, my body cells. 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 I am master of my body. I am master of myself. I am master of my body. I am master of myself. Now just from the energization exercises, breathe in and breathe out and then just tense your whole body. Most of you know these exercises from your toes to the top of your head, just all sort of into one big sweep of energy. Just inhale, tense up your whole body, hold your breath, Feel the energy vibrating. Exhale. Let's do it again. Inhale. Exhale. One more time. Okay, everybody, you can sit down. I move my chair. Let's have some music. Joe? Joe, there you are. What songs did we decide on? Okay, why don't we do Joy in the Heavens? Let's do all three. Joy in the Heavens, then Life is Beautiful, and then Walk Like a Man. Okay. Can you bring it back for me? Yeah, I'll take one now. I've got mine and moved over there. Yes, thank you.
Okay, these again, as most of you were here last week, but we were experimenting last week on techniques for raising our magnetism. So now we'll just learn three more songs if you don't know them. Will they appear up there when we start? Okay. <laughs> this, is an, this is a test. In the heavens, a smile on the mountains, and melody sings everywhere. The flowers are all laughing to welcome the morning. Your soul is as free as the air. The flowers are all laughing to welcome the morning. Your soul is as free as the air. Leave home in the sunshine, dance through a meadow, or sit by a stream and just be. The lilt of the water will gather your worries and carry them down to the sea. The lilt of the water will gather your worries and carry them down to the sea. Men hunger for freedom, but don't see their dungeon is only the thought that they're bound. Desires are their shackles, the hope that tomorrow the doorway to joy will be found. Desires are their shackles, the hope that tomorrow the doorway to joy will be found. There is joy all around us, why wait till tomorrow? We've only this moment to live. A heaven within us is ours for the finding. A freedom no riches can give. A heaven within us is ours for the finding. A freedom no riches can give. There's joy in the heavens, a smile on the mountains, and melody sings everywhere. The flowers are all laughing to welcome the morning. Your soul is as free as the air. Flowers are all laughing to welcome the morning. Your soul is as free as the air. Flowers are all laughing to welcome the morning. Your soul is as free as the air. Well, that's a nice song. Okay. <laughs> is this a children's song, Life is Beautiful? I mean, is it characterized as that or not? Mm -hmm. Life is beautiful, life is gay When I give myself away When I live to please thee, Lord Dancing in thy ray Let me see thee everywhere Hear thy melodies in the air let me live as faith in me, give me joy to share. Life is beautiful, life is gay, when I give myself away. When I live to please thee, Lord, dancing in thy ray. Let me see thee everywhere, hear thy melodies in let me feel thy strength in me. Give me joy to share. Very nice. 
And then let's do walk like a man and then we'll be done. Swamiji always has to say, there's no other word to use in this song but man. So we shouldn't take offense if we're gender sensitive. There's no other word that works. <laughs> walk like a man, even though you walk alone. Why court approval once the road is known? Let come who will, but Before we start in a new direction, does anybody have any questions or comments? Uh, Wayne, the magic system now works, so I can turn the tape on? The, okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. Does anybody have any questions or comments from anything that we've done so far that we'd like to go over? Are you having fun? Are you learning anything? Do you feel like it's helping? Okay, why is it helping? Somebody tell me how it's helping. Okay, I'm looking at you. I wrote an affirmation for the new car which I need. Uh huh. So, sitting on my altar, so instead I'm gonna, I do love the folks that I love. Uh huh. And I'm working on getting past my attachment to having that particular vehicle. Uh huh. And uh, focusing more on the fact that what I need is a mode of transportation that's dependable, safe, and secure. Uh huh. And so, that's what my affirmation 
access now. Before. Okay. <laughs> Any other comments or thoughts about? It's, and, and because you can always come to him and know that he'll, he'll give you something that you can actually do that will actually move you in a positive direction, you end up feeling so confident. You feel super confident about conferring with him and you just begin to feel confident in yourself because here he is, he's this very wise person and he's told you something and you're able to do it. You know, it's not that he sets the bar low, it's just that progress is actually made by little increments. I mean, I'll never forget one person who just wasn't able to do at all what he was asking. And she told him, you know, you've asked me really seriously to do this and I can't do it. And he just smiled and it took him just, you know, a nanosecond to adjust. He says, well, so much for theory, let's work with reality. <laughs> and I, I've just never forgotten that because oftentimes in our own lives, we get trapped in theory and we fail by the theories we've established for ourselves. I ought to be able to. And, and I, I say to myself, well, so much for theory. Let's start with reality and see what we actually can do. And then if you think directionally, you always win. You can always face in the right direction. Or you can always kind of wave in the right direction if you can't quite face there. Or you can always affirm the right direction. I mean, you can always go somewhere. That's what we talked about last week. Yeah. All right. Uh, Kathy? Uh-huh. First of all, that very thought is, is demagnetizing. Oh, what am I going to do? Too much is happening. So the first thing is, what is there to be afraid of in abundance? I mean, you, you keep your balance by not ever really even worrying about keeping your balance. You start by saying, what is balance? I mean, balance is to just be as joyful as possible. And you keep your balance by using your common sense is the only thing I can think of to say. Um, too many fun things to do is a problem. Yeah, because it's just you have only so many hours in the day. But there's no reason for that to make you feel unbalanced. Uh, you, you just... Do um, you understand what I'm trying to say? The thought form that you put out is a very common thought form. <gasps> what am I going to do? Like this? Or, or a sense of compulsion. Um, uh, Swami was asked a question this morning, a very interesting. Someone said, how do, how do you recover from traumatic circumstances or situations that are difficult? He said, just, his answer was so simple. It was almost like, uh, what's next? He said, by, by always coming back to the center of yourself. Just always being centered in yourself. And he said, by that I mean being centered in God. In other words, just because a lot of things are coming into your life doesn't mean that they have to... Um, pull you off center and it's not really the abundance of things that you're talking about or opportunities It's the fact that, that you have allowed yourself to become uncentered from that flow of energy um, and what we're striving to accomplish in our lives is to be able to be in a higher and higher field of energy without losing our center and so uh, you can be in a higher and higher field of energy. I mean, you can keep your center by blocking how much energy comes to you. This is how much I can handle no more like that. Or you can, uh, but, but you can see that um, that's hoarding. I mean, that, that, that blocks the flow. 
But merely because a lot of things come through, it's not the quantity of things that are coming through your life that's making you off-center. It's other issues. You know, it's the issue of uh, becoming too identified with what you're doing, becoming too compulsive about feeling that you have to say yes to everything, um, having your self-worth too tied up in saying yes, being too concerned about what other people say about you. I'm, you know, just randomly pulling ideas out of a hat, but it's not the quantity of opportunities, it's the, um, the fact that too much energy threatens something. And so what, you need, what we need to learn is to realize, it doesn't matter how much energy comes through, as long as I'm centered in myself, what have I to be concerned about? Because then also you kind of intuitively know, I can't do that. I often say, I'm, I, I'm not saying it clearly enough, so I'll use just my own personal way of coping with this. Um, because of the life that we live, you know, where we use our home, a lot of people stay with us, we have programs in our house, we do all kinds of things that I didn't know I would be able to do. I used to see friends of mine who lived sort of like I'm living and I didn't know how they could do it. Now as people say to me, how do I do it? I said, I don't know, I just do it. It's not hard for me anymore. Um, but, there is, and people will say to me, I'll say, call me, you know, don't be afraid to call, don't be afraid to ask anything, because I will always say no and I can't do it. And I, I just say to people, you really will not be able to impose on me, I promise you. If I say yes, I really mean it. And if I can't say yes, I will say no. And all of you who know me well know that I have said no. You know, I say yes as often as I can, and then I just say no when I can't do it anymore. And as a consequence, I'm not really upset by the mere flow of energy because I've established a capacity within myself to say yes when I can and no when I can't. Now, of course, one has to learn one's own limits and uh, one has to not be afraid to expand them and so on, but to be afraid first before you've actually experienced it. Now, there's two schools of spiritual growth that my friends and I have debated on. One school of spiritual growth is to stand there and move only when you're really sure of the territory, and then be certain about the next step, and then you take the next step. The other is to just run headlong into the wall, and if you hit it, then you just hit it, you know? <laughs> the crash and burn theory of spiritual growth. I've always been big into the crash and burn theory, just sort of because I always, nothing ventured, nothing gained. It always seems a little better to me to just push it a little far, but then just not be afraid to say, whoops, went too far back up again, because otherwise you never know how far you can go. But it's your own capacity to absorb energy that's the problem, not the energy coming to you. And, and it's, these are orientations of the mind. It's, it's like when people say, oh, wait till you take creatine, so much karma is going to hit you, you just don't know. And it gets to be like people literally will come and say, oh, I'm afraid to take creatine because of all I've heard. I think, my God, this is the best thing that's ever going to happen to you. But, but the thought form is that I will raise my energy and I will have experiences and I will grow. And then somehow that gets t tied up in the mind as something to be afraid of. And so that, and that's really the dangerous thing, not that things are happening. So we have to be really careful not to consider expansion itself threatening. Um, which is why, I mean, you read these principles and you think, why don't people just live this way? Well, it's because expansion is threatening. We like to stay within the parameters of what we already know. And that's why our magnetism is small, is that we, we really sincerely don't want to magnetize more to ourselves because then we have to deal with it. I know... Uh, uh, Jacqueline tells this story, Jacqueline who used to live here, 
who's just an angel woman. The story is more touching because it's about her. There was another a man who lived here many years ago who, with whom she just simply did not get along. And the fact that she gets along with everyone, so it, it tells something about this poor man's personality. He was difficult. They just didn't mesh. And uh, Jacqueline finally just wrote this irate letter to Swami Kriyananda about all the things this man had done that were just so outrageous that she could hardly bear it. And the letter she got back from Swamiji was, he just wants to be your friend. <laughs> Jacqueline wasn't going to take that lying down. <laughs> she said, I have no wish for him to be my friend. She says, basically, I do not want to expand that much. <laughs> but she knew that she was caught. <laughs> but that is true, isn't it? I don't want to expand that much. I don't know. And Jyotish, the story of Jyotish tells of his little boy who was having trouble with some bully in the second grade or something. And, uh, you know, the boy, Mark, his son, came home all irate about this boy. And Jyotish was a very, I mean, the son now is 21, but... Uh, it was a very good father. He just let him spout off and be irate. And then later, when he was quieter and calmer, Joe just sort of talk, started talking to him about, you know, why do people behave badly? And often it's because they're unhappy. And sometimes if you just help them, then they're, they're not so unkind anymore. The same sort of story. He just wants to be your friend. The little boy said to his father, Daddy, I don't want to be that good. <laughs> And there is a real part of us, and it helps to admit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, or I don't want to. I don't know what will happen if I open the door to this much energy. And, and that's like the key issue. I don't know what will happen to me if I open the door to this much energy. And so then you have to really meditate. What do I think will happen? You know, what do I think will happen if I actually open myself to this much energy? If I become this serviceful, this selfless, this loving, um, this willing? What will happen to me? It's a very real question, believe me. And it's a real one to ask instead of just falling into the thought that I'm being threatened. You know, fall in, ask yourself the real question, what is threatening me? You know, what could happen to me that would really be so terrible? Oh my God, a lot of people would really ask me to help them. <gasps> I don't know how many of you have seen the movie My Cousin Vinny? And it's sort of at the end after she's helped him win his first case and in her she speaks more more with more color than I will repeat it. But she just sort of talks about how he's sort of annoyed this man had promised to marry her when he won his first case as a lawyer. And he won his first case because she helped him. And he's sort of talking about, you know, does it really count because she helped him? And she goes through this very sarcastic thing about, oh, my God, I helped you. Now you're going to have to thank me. What an awful thing, you know. But it, we do fall into thoughts like that. You know, how really terrible I'm getting to be so helpful that people are asking me to help them. I'm getting to be so, you know, capable that people keep calling on me. We think that's somehow bad. What are we afraid of? Well, it is true. We will lose. Um, we do lose something. We lose our smallness. And our smallness is comfortable. You know, these are the questions. Why don't we have more magnetism? Because it's more comfortable like this. It's just easier to go home and watch TV. You know, it really is. It's easier to just complain about the fact that nobody appreciates me than it really is to, to smile <laughs> and just take the job and really do it and do it so well that they will appreciate you. It's easier to say, why don't they appreciate me? You know, there was a woman that years ago, 
when I was organizing a certain department within Ananda, she wanted me to tell people that they had to um, ask her approval for things. I told her that really I could tell all of them that they had to ask your approval and advice in this situation. But unless your advice is useful, they will find a way not to do it. <laughs> you know, rather than telling me to tell them, you have to actually make yourself beneficial. And when you make yourself beneficial, then nobody will have to tell anybody. In other words, you create the magnetism. Uh, but, but I appreciate it, and I don't want to not answer you with sympathy. No, but with sympathy, that it is a little unnerving because you are actually changing your entire self. When you put out a different or more energy, you have become an entirely different person because, and these are the themes of this whole book, all we are is an energy field. You know, that's just so marvelous to just sit around and think about that. All you are is a field of energy. All anything is is a field of energy. If you change your magnetism, you are a completely different person, right? And so no wonder it's a little unnerving because you've gotten used to the other one. You know, whatever it is, icky or, or, or pleasant, it's comfortable. The known misery is the phrase that I've made up. A preference for the known misery over the potential for more happiness. At least you know the parameters of this one, right? And it's not a small thing to have to overcome. It's probably the biggest thing to overcome, the courage to change. You know, to really say, I, I'm willing to be something else. It really does hold us back. Yes, Sharon. You have to ask, the fear of failure is what you're saying. Oh, fear of, you know, it's very, it's much more comfortable to not be able to have done it because you didn't really try. This is fine, just because you didn't really try. But if you tried and didn't make it, then you really are in trouble. It's a bad one. I, I would always, when, I've always sort of uh, been blessed with a certain, <laughs> this is because of the wires. <laughs> On this side of the kitchen, she had the jars over here. She had a teaspoon. <laughs> she did it for several minutes. I could not stand it. And I just moved everything. And she was sort of saying, I was beginning to think maybe there was another way to do it. You know, people are really, really different. Really different. Anyway. But this, that woman has a tremendous, just to speak, because it's not irrelevant, she has a tremendous capacity to endure. Um, because, and I have a very, very low tolerance for suffering or, or anything. So I'm very creative. Because as soon as I begin to get a little bit uncomfortable, I, I have to find another alternative. She doesn't have that instantaneous kind of creativity. She's very creative. I don't mean to mislead you. But, but she doesn't have that instantaneous sense. Her reaction to situations is to sort of hunker down and endure them. So she has this magnificent capacity to endure. But she often endures things that don't have to be endured, you know. <laughs> you see how everything works a little differently? <laughs> yeah, isn't that unbelievable? No one in Silicon Valley would ever do that. <laughs> one more story, then we'll change. But this is relevant. When we, uh, when we were in the other um, facility that only a few of you were in for seven years, where Java, Jumpin' Java, used to be Kinko's on the corner. We had the second, a place on the second story sort of in the back, we had an office suite before we had this. And at Christmas time, because we were small, on Christmas Eve when we did our Christmas Eve service and we gave everybody a candle to do the RT, many of you have come to that, 
instead of, it was small enough that everybody just kind of crowded up to the front. And it was really fun. There would be 50 or 60 people, and we were all just sort of doing it. Like, there was kind of chaos. At the end of which, it had to turn into a situation where, uh, like Sunday, where everybody received a blessing from the small group of ministers who were going to do that. And some one of our ministers had just moved here, and she said she had a very need to have everything in order. Well, how will it work? I mean, they'll all be crowded up there. I said, just turn to the person closest to you and start blessing. Look at your watch. In less than 60 seconds, they will have all lined up. Because this is Silicon Valley. No one, no one will be able to stand it. They'll just be in lines, you know. And just, even though I was supposed to be blessing, you know, I was like practically watching them. Boom, 60 seconds, they're all in lines. <laughs> it was true. You know, we all have different kinds of magnetism. We're all here because that's what we're like. I mean, just, I'm on this. I'm going to tell you one more. Just <laughs> This is unrelated completely. In, uh, in Assisi, there's a couple, Helmut and Maya Devi, German couple, and they're light bearers. And for the few of you who don't know, on Sundays, we have this ceremony where we bless everyone, and you generally use your index finger and you touch someone at the forehead if, that, if you're the one doing it. Well, this is, you know, the mind, you get a little absent-minded. Well, they, this was there before they had the new temple in Ananda, Sisi. They had the temple in one of the old buildings there. And uh, they were, they, they first you do this ceremony where you offer the light to the altar. So Helmut was doing that, and then he'd finished, and he was standing there facing the altar, and he saw an ant sort of walking across the altar. And because he's sort of a maintenance ant, he just reached out and smashed it, you know, just like absently crushed the ant, because they don't like to have ants. Well, you know, ants are a nuisance in a retreat. You have to kind of get rid of them. So he smashed the ant. Then he turned around to bless someone. <laughs> And his wife watched him put the ant right on somebody's the dead ant. We have a very short book of horror stories, and that one is number one. But she could hardly, you know, she was just laughing hysterically. But they had to hold it together through the rest of the service. Well, I just remembered that. So some of us... You, it's nice to know how bad it can get, because then you say, at least that didn't happen to me. At least I didn't do that. Okay. But coming back to your question about failure, Sharon. Yeah, that does it. Um, the question is, what does it? What is failure? Because when you're when you're when you're saying that you can fail. You're looking at your life, and this is related to the chapter we read today, as if things were fixed entities. You know, what, failure, there's no, there's no spot that you can call failure. Um, the only thing that's failure is if your energy is shrinking. And so to fail, I mean, it's much more of a failure to, uh, to comp compress your energy than it is to make an effort to expand it and not be able to expand it as far as you wanted to. Do you see what I mean? So part of the overcoming the fear is realizing, but what, what am I afraid of? I'm, what I, I mean, change the goal. The goal is directional. The goal is to get a little bigger than I am. If I get a little bigger than I am, I've succeeded. If I imagine I could be that big and I only make it to here because I don't have either the talent or as much willpower as I hoped I did, but I've still succeeded because I have expanded. So much of of anxiety and so on is the way Swami says is lack of crystal clarity in your concept 
And so you say something, just what you said, oh, I don't try because I'm afraid of failing. And everybody says, yes, yes, I understand. And you don't really analyze that and ask, what am I actually saying? Um, I, I, where I started before I got distracted with that whole series of jokes was, um, I have, I'm, I'm enormously fearful of many things, but I've, I've always somehow expected people to like me. I, I just was born with a certain charisma that has generally made me liked. Not always, but often enough. But I just have that expectation. I don't have the fear of people disliking me. I have, I, I save my fear for a lot of other things. And uh, because of that, I've, I've sort of been able to, to, to make the conscious decision to risk more in relationships than some people are able to. So people often come to me and they'll say, you know, I sort of like so-and-so, but I don't know what to do. I said, well, why don't you just go out and meet them or talk to them or tell them that you like them? <gasps> you know, like... <laughs> I said, what will you lose? You know, what do you lose by loving? It's a very, just a very simple question. What do you lose by loving? They may say, in fact, you know, I don't return the same affection that you return, but it's flattering to have someone say that they find you attractive. I mean, I'm not talking about throwing yourself at someone's feet and announcing to them that you will die unless they take you in. I'm just talking about a simple, like, conversation. Just, you know, what do you have to lose? Again, it's the same question. Where is the failure? If we're sincere and kind and respectful and loving and honest, what, where is the failure? And as soon as you can just change... See, this is, what, this is why this book is really so revolutionary. You change everything from fixed realities into flows of energy. And Henry just picked it out perfectly. It's just directional. And naturally, many things will not work out according to the fixed form that you have, but you are part of an intelligent reality. So if it doesn't work out according to your fixed form, it's not really anything. It's just the, the whole reality moving in the way it's supposed to move. Where is the failure? So instead of trying to use affirmations like, I will succeed, I will succeed, because you might, you might not. You can't, you don't necessarily know what your destiny is. And that's why affirmations that are too solid actually often work against you because if you've, if you've happened to have tried to affirm something that isn't in your karma to affirm, you'll feel like you failed. But if you affirm with all your heart, I will give it my best effort to achieve it, then you've always succeeded. Because if you don't get it, your affirmation was that I will give it my best effort. And you see how free that is? Or else I will give it half my effort because that's all I really want to give it. Swami is fond of quoting his mother who says, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> Which is actually a good thought for, for perfectionists. You know, if it's worth doing, I'll do it badly. I was sharing in... Uh, Saturday morning's class. I was starting to remember one to make sure it wasn't here. Um, the fact that when I came to Ananda in 1971, I found myself within a couple of months in the kitchen at the seclusion retreat. And within a short time after that, I found myself in charge of the kitchen, kitchen there, which a position I held for about a year and a half. And it was a much smaller situation, but I cooked three meals a day for about 30 people six days a week. Um, with a slightly mentally deficient woman who was my assistant. 
and, but I was 24 and I had a ton of energy and on my day off I'd go to town and fill the truck up with supplies. I mean, it was fabulously fun. There's a little problem, which is that I didn't know how to cook. <laughs> I was very interested in food and nutrition because I was a fanatic, but I didn't know how to cook. I mean, I didn't know how to make things nice and taste good. I could, I could make them, turn them from raw to cooked, but I didn't really know anything in between. I remember, I, and I tried though. I remember Swamiji, finally, I don't know whether everyone just complained to him because there I was. He sort of said, I made something for a really special event, and he said, well, that was a little um, bland. <laughs> and without any defensiveness, I said, oh, yes, sir, it was. And he said, and he saw that I was not defensive, so he took another half step. In fact, often the things you cook are a little... <laughs> The land. <laughs> and I, then I said, honestly, oh, yes, sir, but I just don't know how to make them better. And then he said to me, well, maybe I better teach you to cook. And uh, so there was this uh, Swami visiting us, uh, us meaning Ananda, and he was a big, fat man. And the years have passed, and now he's even a bigger, fatter man. I mean, I mean, fat. I still remember, I remember the picture of him sort of lying horizontal with this gigantic stomach. He was a very nice man, still is, but fat. And so <laughs> we, uh, we cooked for him. So he, he was visiting Swami for the weekend, and we cooked. And uh, so I, I was there. I was going to learn to cook, right? So I, I was really skinny, and I had my hair in little braids at that time, and I had these little brown glasses. And I was a fanatic. And I had my pencil and my paper because we were going to learn to cook. And, and Swami just said, well, put a little of that. And, Oops, too much. Well, we'll just add some of this and then we'll put a little of that. And then we'll start and then we'll just, you know, and it's just like, whoa. And I'm just like totally freaked. I didn't know what he was doing. And so I just gave up. And I just sort of was there and just did it with Swami through the weekend. And on the very last day when we were having to make the last meal, we were going to make a fruit salad and... I said, well, I can do it. And he said, okay, oh, no, no, no. He said, I'm teaching you to cook. So he came up with me, and we cut the fruit together and put it in the bowl. I mean, he was teaching me to cook. We cut the fruit. But at the end of the weekend, I knew how to cook. And I dare say, I'm quite a good cook at this point. I learned how to cook. He awakened in me magnetism and intuition about, about cooking. And until from that day until... And then I just have always cooked intuitively. I recently, just like last month when I was in Assisi cooking, I learned to use cookbooks because I had to cook too much. But I just intuitively just knew how to do it. And, I, and Swami knows that, and we joke about it now. But, um, uh, but one of the reasons I was able to do it, and this is where the point comes, I was raised in, in a very intellectually oriented family. I would say that we were snobs. Um, we were intellectual snobs, so I was raised to be an intellectual snob. <laughs> I was, yes, but I, I succeeded for a long time, but now I failed. <laughs> now I have a subscription to Reader's Digest. <laughs> and I'm proud of it. <laughs> but uh, So cooking just wasn't that important. You know, there was just no self-worth issue associated with cooking. There was no sense. I mean, now I've grown to respect it a lot more, and I'm really, really glad that I can cook. It's a wonderful thing to be able to cook. But at that time especially, I mean, it was my job, and it would have been better to cook, but like just meant zip to me. 
you know, so many things. Again, I saved my fear for a lot of other areas. Cooking had zero. So I was completely receptive. There was nothing to be defensive about. I had nothing to prove because if you failed at this miserably unimportant activity, what difference did it make? It didn't diminish me at all. But as a result, I just was able to learn how to do it. And it was the first thing in my life I learned to do intuitively. I, I, I just sort of got that you could do things intuitively. You didn't have to run it through this rational process all the time in order to make it work. I mean, I'm, I'm very logical and orderly and so on in all circumstances. So I don't mean that I just am a flake, but, but, you, but it was just different. It was completely different. But well, that was so instructive to me. And I, I'm not, I haven't been entirely successful in treating everything in my life like I feel about cooking, but it's a very good method. You know, why do I think that myself, myself is so defined by this effort? Because if it isn't, then you can do it badly. If it's worth doing, just do it badly. And of course, when you joyfully do it badly, you often do it quite well. Because why? Because your magnetism is so good. That's the whole thing. And part of our problem with attracting money is that we just get so uptight about it that our magnetism is terrible. And we just can't attract anything. It's just so simple, not easy, but so simple. It's all just the way we approach it. And uh, in this uh, chapter that we're working with today about realizing that there's no limit to the edges of this, it, it partly relates, Marilyn's question was right on target with the chapter. You know, why do I think that I don't have enough? to be able to deal with what's coming to me. Now, don't, don't, don't mistake that to mean that I have enough energy to do everything. Common sense simply says we don't have enough energy to do everything. And the spirit of Ananda, and the spirit of life in this valley especially, is to really try to make you have to do everything. I mean, we have, we have for those of you who are familiar with these, you know, we're, in, we're coming out of Kali Yuga, the age of matter, we're coming into the age of energy, Dwapara Yuga. There's a lot more energy in Dwapara Yuga just coming in. But we have the Kali Yuga forms, but we're doing them at the Dwapara Yuga pace. And that's why we're just tripping over ourselves, becoming overwhelmed with all that's happening to us. But what we have to relax into is not that we can do it all, because often what's being asked of us is exceedingly unhealthy. You know, merely because the world asks it of you does not mean that it's a healthy or an honorable or a beneficial request. But the confidence we have to have is, I can deal with it. Not necessarily that I can do it, but that I can deal with it. That's what I was saying to you, Marilyn. There's no reason to think that I can't deal with the fact that more things are going to be asked of me. I can stay centered in myself and intuitively or rationally just make judgments about what has to happen. I don't have to feel that if the energy gets higher, automatically I can't deal with it. You know, there's no reason to say that because energy is unlimited. I am part of a greater intelligent reality. But if we respond to things by contracting, then it does get harder and harder to cope, especially as the energy gets stronger and stronger and we get tenser and tenser. You think of it like a surfer riding the wave. You know, he can ride the wave or she can ride the wave really easily as long as you ride the wave instead of clinging to the surfboard and hoping the wave will go away. You know, <laughs> it's not a good way to deal with it, right? But sometimes we do just have to, just as Swami put it, you put a rock in the river and then the river goes around the rock. 
And sometimes you just quietly and calmly put a rock in the river and say, I'm sorry, this is my limit. But you don't, you're not angry. Nobody's doing anything to you. You're not failing. You're just being a normal, rational person. This is just my limit, and I don't have to be upset about this. You create a vacuum and somebody else steps into it. Yeah. Or you just, it just can't be done because it's ridiculous. Nobody could do it. You know, nobody could accomplish all that much. I see, I, Chris is a mother and I know just how you feel. Yeah, it's just, you can't do it. Did you want to speak or just gesture? <laughs> mm-hmm. The answer you just gave, so I can't put a spoon up on stuff, and it's very good. <laughs> no, uh, but you're, you know, I was, I think there's a phrase in here, uh, in one of, it just, that struck me, and I don't know. Um, let's see if I can just think of it. Yes, he uses, uh, for one thing, as I pointed out earlier, wealth is much more than money. It is happiness, peace of mind, the richness of fulfilling relationships, and here's the, word, the, the line, a simple and uncluttered life, wisdom and love. Now, what's happening in our time, and especially in our place, is simple and uncluttered is getting very difficult to achieve. A certain amount of it is circumstantial we just can't get out of. I mean, I don't, I don't know how practical this is in a family situation. I don't have children, so I know this is, it's, it's easier if you don't. But uh, Yogananda used the phrase a lot about uh, things owning us and how many things own us rather than, than we own them. And I, I watch even just my own life, you know, I have a relatively simple life, but you know, there's the laundry and there's the garden and there's the this and there's the that. And, I just, I have, I've always just held the line. If I can't do it, I won't do it. And I just will let things go if they can't be dealt with. Because it's just not worth it. You know, you just have to, you have to have a, have a, a sense that your life isn't too cluttered. And I think that there's a necessity to take a stand on it. I must say that a lot of people have experimented and told me that if they throw away their television, then a lot of things get easier. Whereas you have the impression that it, it's, it's easier to have it. But many people have said if you throw away the television, your life is a lot simpler because it eats up so much of your time. Because it eats up so much of your time. And, and where you think of it as relaxing or something like that, that it actually eats your time. And I, I think that... Um, I recall reading them, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to go on a campaign on this, but I, I loved reading this article that was so persuasive about this couple. They had children, and their boy was beginning to fail in school. And he's a bright boy, and they couldn't figure it out. And, and somehow the wife intuitively began to get that it had to do with the television. So the children, as she said, came home from school one day, and it was gone. She said, I don't mean unplugged, I don't mean put away, I mean gone. She said for three months her children behaved like drug addicts. You know, just, they were hysterical, they were sneaking out, they were just, they were so upset. Then everything about the family shifted, and she particularly mentioned the fact that that without TV they had so much time. Because they they just, it was quiet, it was focused, and they're just, they didn't just lose hours. Every, even, if they were relaxing, they were relaxing in a more creative way, and so therefore there was more 
energy coming in. Now, TV is a great big example, but we really have to ask ourselves how many things that we think, how much do we really have to do? And Yogananda has predicted that a terrible depression is coming to this country, and he said very simply, people will have much less money and be much happier. And, and I look around here and I think, it's going to be really freaky when it first comes and then people are going to be so happy because people who live here are extraordinarily creative and artistic and educated and and are real they make things happen and so when we can't just drive all day and make ourselves hysterical you know we'll start doing things again we'll, we'll relate to each other and we'll be artistic and musical and funny and all the things that we can be that that calm us down so so you have to ask not merely am i rushing around but in what context am i rushing around what am i listening to on the radio when i'm rushing around uh, you know is it really worth it to save five dollars to drive across to there and you know questions like that it's what you have to do is a lot of discipline but that's not um because of any sense of deprivation or lack See, there was a there was a point in there. Well, I've lost the point. I'll come back to it in a moment. Does that make sense? But the simple, uncluttered life. But you see, also that's also your magnetism. Is if if you feel overwhelmed, you have less magnetism, and so you have to do things that make you not feel overwhelmed. Other than, no, because that makes you contractive. You have to work with yourself to not feel overwhelmed. And uh, there's a. Uh, I mean, I, I use very simple mantras, very simple little affirmations um, it, that, that go right to the heart of the fear rather than working with the objects. I, I don't need to be afraid. If I really have to do this, I'll have the energy to do it. There's a concept that, that uh, um, Van Mali Devi, who's this lovely Indian lady who's written a book about the life of Krishna, the play of God, and a book about Rama. She's going to come in the summer and speak here. Yeah, she's a beautiful lady. And she's a devotee of Krishna. And she was telling us when we visit her in her lovely home in Rishikesh that uh, when she has something to do that can't be done in the time allotted, she stops looking at her clock and shifts into what she calls Krishna time, which is that if it has to be done in this period of time, it will be done. <laughs> and she says it always works if you don't keep looking at the clock after you shift into Krishna time <laughs> because you have to just say it's okay. In other words, you take the, you, you correct your magnetism, you take the stress out of it. And she gave several just really practical examples, making breakfast in time for a really large group. And so every time I feel myself getting really anxious about how am I going to get it done, I say Krishna time, you know, which is because I was there with her, it really means a lot to me. I'm shifting into Krishna time. It has to be done and therefore it can be done. I've watched Swami Kriyananda many times over the years. I have never seen him hurry. You know, if he just he just moves, and I don't mean that he moves slowly. Although he's he's more methodical than I am, and by nature slower. I, I tend to be very jerky like that. Even if we're very late, he he recognizes that that you won't get there faster by moving with pressure. And, you know, we don't get there faster. We don't get there. Any, it doesn't take any longer for him to move slowly and calmly than it does for me to move frantically, <laughs> which is a very interesting fact. It takes exactly the same amount of time. So you just always keep checking your magnetism. Energy is unlimited is one of the rules of this chapter, too.
Why do we think it's limited? When people go on a long trip, because we take this India pilgrimage every few years, we're taking it again this fall, if any of you would like to come. Um, it's like a four-week trip. And it's, it's a long trip. People are going to be gone from their lives for four weeks. There's always a huge amount to take care of. But what we converse with people and we write to them and we say, but do not get into the what we call false deadline of the fact that you're leaving on a trip. As someone put it, when she found herself getting ready to go on a pilgrimage in October, and she was hemming her summer dresses, and she really felt it had to be done before she left. <laughs> you realize that you've just allowed yourself to feel like this has to be done at this moment, and there's all this false sense of reality. It's a, it's a sense of limitation. I'm trying to tie it in with our chapter today. It's a sense of limited reality. I'll tell one more story, and I'll take a little break. When I was, when I was first started working for Swami Kriyananda, uh, you know, for I gradually became a secretary and sort of worked as I, I just helped him. I was an assistant. That's the word they use these days, a personal assistant. Um, one of the first things he asked was a, just to help him straighten up his house one day. This was like when I very first was meeting him. And another woman and I were helping him. And, you know, his house was, it's very orderly because other people keep it in order. He, he himself just doesn't have time. This is one of the things. If you go to his house in Assisi, it just, everything just piles up. David and I took two bags of paper like this out of his living room, which was small, just because so much comes to him and he just doesn't take, he doesn't want to take the time. It just piles up and every few months somebody will come through and throw it all away. <laughs> but uh, I was there and that, his house then was a dome. It was a single room. The, the Crystal Hermitage Dome was his whole house and his office was just in one section. So wherever you were in the house, you were really in one place, even though there were partitions. And I was cleaning, and I was in the bookshelf, and I came to this little cup, an open cup, that had this orange powder, this kumkum powder in it. I knew what the cup was. It was the powder that Swami used when he gave us Kriya initiation. He would stick his finger into the powder and then put a mark on your forehead, and so there would be a mark left. Powder, it's... And at that time, he gave Kriya initiation twice a year. And the, the kumpung powder was up there, and I was sort of cleaning things up, and I picked it up, and he somehow heard and knew what I was doing. He said, leave that there, I'm using it. <laughs> and I put it back, and I thought to myself, he's using it? He uses it, but he does use it. He uses it twice a year. You know, it's like part of just the flow of energy. And it was very instructive to me, because I wanted to take it down, put it into a jar, close it up, put a label on it, wash out the cup, put the cup away, you know, because to me it wasn't being used. And I was just going to freeze everything and just stop it like that. And then when it was time, I'd open it up and dump it out and everything. But to him, it was like, it was all in motion. Everything was in motion. There was just this constant flow about things. And that's actually what I have seen. That's the way he can just have his house pile up like that. He's writing books. It just doesn't exist. He's working on this now. And everything just flows. And in its own good time, it'll get worked out. You know, it's the way you have to cope with a lot of energy running through you. You can't sit, consider everything to be a stopped, fixed point. You understand? And that's what this chapter, this first chapter about sort of unlimited abundance. How much is there? How much is there of time? How much is there of money? How much is there of opportunity of creativity? It's an unlimited. It's a flow. And instead of always figuring that we've stopped it here and I've reached my limit and this is what I can do and this is what I can't do, it's just all a flow. It's what... I had an intuition when I first started on the path 
my only, like, remotely uh, voice from God said, what's your hurry, honey? It's just one damn thing after another. <laughs> I was 19 years old. I just started on the path, and I was rushing to do this and rushing to that, and then just this voice, what's your hurry, honey? It's just one damn thing after another. And, and to this day, I'll feel all this anxiety building that I think there's some fixed point that I'm going to reach, you know? And then it'll be something. It won't be. It's just one damn thing after another. And then you're dead, really. So what is it that we're trying to freeze? But you see how nervous we get? And it's all based really on the principle that Swami's talking about in the first chapter we read tonight, that is it fixed or is it infinite? And if it's infinite, what are we trying to hold on to? Just let it keep going through endlessly. Yes, Henry. Fair to Swamiji, here's what he says. When he's writing music, he can't even remember how to write books. When he's writing books, he can't imagine how he ever wrote music. And he says, quite frankly, the reason I'm able to accomplish so much is whatever I do, that's all I do. He takes it as, but, but that can mean if he's talking to you, he doesn't know that he's writing books. And then as soon as he's finished talking, he's writing a book. Concentration. Actually, when we get to the end of the book, this book, we get to the subject of concentration. Because concentration, as much as anything else we've talked about, is the key to magnetism. Because you have to bring your energy to a focus and then you generate power and that's what makes it work. Now you can focus, as he does, on many different things. Or you cannot be focused. You know, you can have, you can be not concentrated even if there's only one thing in your life, and you can be very concentrated even if there's 15. It's a question of whether you're doing it or not, not what it looks like from the outside. Okay? Let's take a break. I've pushed you too long. You're all looking just a little bit like, when is she going to take a break? Now. <laughs> What haven't I covered about what we read? Is there things that are in your mind that you want to hear that we haven't talked enough about? I think we've dealt with that one. I just want to make sure. I mean, uh, Swamiji recorded this book, but made it into an audio book, which will be out soon. We've been. He also took a place called Ananda, you know, the gigantic orange book he just read. He's made an audio book out of that, which um, we've, I've been hearing it. It is... It's, it's overwhelming to hear in his own voice with the emotion and the energy of all his life experiences. It's, it's quite a story. I mean, I've read it and I've heard it, but hearing him say it is... But anyway, he's recorded this one, too. And he said, after he finished recording it, he said, that's a very good book. <laughs> so there's a... Even though we can read it, he does. He's so impersonal about it. He feels so much like they're given to him rather than that he writes them that he can just very casually say that. Um, uh, uh, but uh, because so much of this is about consciousness, when it does come out, it would be worthwhile to listen to it. Because when he makes a statement, the, the meaning is more clear because you get the vibration of his understanding of it. And you understand it's obvious that way. So is there something that we haven't said in this chapter that you want to hear about? I want there was a couple more things.
Yes. No, what I wanted to talk about here, I remembered that there was something specifically. He, t- he talks in here about um, the best-selling book, Looking Out for Number One. That was this was many years ago. Do you remember that book? It was a, it was just called Looking Out for Number One, and the whole um, training towards selfishness that is somewhat common. Uh, just about um, the more I, I actually I bought lemonade from two little boys on the street, and uh, I actually think he tried to steal from me. It took me later to realize he tried to under under return the change. And I, I knew that he, it wasn't until, if I'd really cognized it completely in the moment, I would have absolutely refused to take the lemonade, you know, and insisted he give me all my money back just to get his attention. But uh, it's just so, you know, the, the moral crisis in our country is so profound because there's been so much emphasis on just taking for yourself. And so Swami um, touches on this by just asking the question, you know, why is it, why is it so inherently unfulfilling to keep drawing to yourself? And he just talks about how the natural direction of consciousness is toward expansion. And if, if we contract, we're doing violence to our own nature and it ultimately will never fulfill us. And it's, it's a very, um, again, it's another one of those very simple sort of clear ideas that the more clearly you can hold it, anything that expands our identity with a greater reality is going to ultimately make us happier. Now again, these ideas have to be applied with common sense because if you, if you affirm beyond the ground that you can actually stand on, it, it has to be directional and it has to be realistic, so much for theory. Um, but the, the, what, what our souls are always seeking is an expansion of identity and consciousness and it's it's another one of those ways that we can keep focused on the real objective and not get lost on what the, that objective may look like. Do you know what I mean? Henry, were you going to ask something well, there? That many people um, are mean and selfish and they will take advantage of you. Yes. So, yeah. Um, so you have to decide for yourself on a practical level first how much you want to fight how much you can, you know, practically speaking, what can I actually do? Then you have to decide on a consciousness level how much it's worth to you. Yeah, that's really is, is it really worth it to you to get in there and engage? Are, are real principles involved? Um, and sometimes this, the simple principle is, I just don't think it's right for her to take advantage of me and I see no reason in the world. Swami Kriyananda is not a pushover at all. And Sri Teshwar, an autobiography of a yogi, it's a very interesting point. He filed lawsuits when people tried to take his property from him or tried to mistreat him, he filed lawsuits against people um, because it wasn't right and he just wasn't going to let it happen. Now that doesn't mean you should file a lawsuit. Many times in my life I've walked away from money, not many, but a few times in my life I've walked away from money because it's just not worth it to me. It's it's just not. When you're looking at someone that you see you know, the tar baby story, that if I touch this, I'm going to get sucked into it, that the consciousness I'm working with is never going to be reasonable. It's always going to be insane, and I just don't want to be anywhere near it. It's worth a thousand or five thousand or seven hundred dollars for me not to have to deal with you anymore. And then you just walk away knowing that God will take care of it. However, if you're cowardly or lazy or absolutely can't afford it, you know, those are other things that you have to look at, but 
many times you can't win and you know it and it's just not worth the effort. We had a landlord like that when we rented in Atherton from this man. There was just no way to win against him. He was just... <laughs> there was, you couldn't appeal to any... There was nothing you could appeal to in him that would cause him to share. <laughs> he just wouldn't. If he could take it from you, he would. That was that. And when we finally realized it, it just wasn't worth it. You know, just extricate yourself and take it as a lesson. So, so you have to ask yourself sort of on that level because it's just money when you finally get down to it. And if it's going to take your peace of mind away, it's not worth it. But you can try the things that Swami says. Try to appeal to broader principles. You can meditate on such a person. You can pray. Oftentimes you, you can pray to their own soul. If you have a real difficult situation with someone, pray to their superconscious and say, you know, on a soul level, how can I help you? How can I help you not be such a, a, a terrible person in this situation? What can I do that will reach you? Well, it was interesting because Shelley drafted another book, mm -hmm. which was more in that vein. Sometimes you just know. Uh, the other Sunday service, I told a story about being in Greece and having a taxi driver take advantage of us by driving us you know, in big circles to get a short distance to run the meter up. And uh, when we had protested, he, he, after some, you know, verbal tussles, David wore glasses, still wore glasses at that time, and the man reached over and took off David's glasses and pulled them and put in his pocket and sat down in his cab. We're in the middle of Greece, you know, I mean, these are glasses David really needed. And uh, we sort of looked at each other and we said, he just won, you know. And sometimes you just have to say they've won. They may won because they're willing to be unscrupulous on a level you're not willing to be. And you just have to say they've won. It's just money. It'll come and go. You know. Yeah, bad things happen to good people. There are really nasty people in the world, and we are all part of them too. But we can't do anything. Say, her karma will come back to her. You know, you, you, it doesn't. It doesn't require you to punish her. If it's really your job to do so, if you're really the instrument of her karmic ending. You, you may feel the need to say something or write something just so that it doesn't go by completely, but it'll take care of itself. Whatever people do comes back to them. And whatever you do comes back to you. You just have to stand, stand away with faith. And every time you think of her, you need to replace it with a positive thought of some kind. Because, Lord, you don't want her to take your peace of mind, too. She's already taken your money. <laughs> I mean, you have to say that to yourself. If I give in to this thought, then she has really won. If she just takes my money, she's just taken my money and she's hurt herself. But if I become mean or angry or obsessed about her, then she really has taken something from me. Because she's taken my peace of mind. Why would I want that? But yeah, the, the mind clings. We love to cling. We love to just run the story over and again. That and we can't concentrate. That's the later chapters we're coming to, the need to concentrate. Part of it is to be able to pull your mind off of these other things because you have no magnetism. See how everything is a question of will this create the right kind of magnetism? And if the answer is no, it's not what you want to do. It's just life gets so simple, really. You know that when you know when you're in the right, you know when you're in the wrong, and you know when to take action. Some action has to be taken because the wrong magnetism is happening here. It's 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 the natural extension of Einstein's uh, discovery that this is an energy universe. It's the natural 
corollary of all. That's why when Yogananda, almost all of you, you know, know this, that's why Yogananda said the energization exercises are so important. A lot of times people just pass over them and don't appreciate it. But the energization exercises teach you how to generate energy at will. And to generate energy at will is to create magnetism. To create magnetism is everything. So if you're not doing the energization exercises, start doing them. You know, and if you're saying, oh, I'm having trouble here, I'm having trouble there, things aren't going right there, the question is, am I doing the energization exercises? It's an important question because if you are with real concentration, you're getting into the fact that it's a flow of energy. And if it's a flow of energy, that's all you ever need in any situation. All you need is a flow of energy that you can direct. Then you're fine. Every problem is because you don't have enough energy or it's not directed properly. If you think about it. Yeah. All right. What I was going to talk about here was um, when I was saying about just thinking of expansion as the definition of things, what you're really looking for, I was going to tell one story and then I'll let it be for tonight, unless there's other questions before I go to this. You know, and I, um, I, I was raised, pardon me, were you raising your hand? No, okay. Um, when I was younger, I was telling this story a little bit on Saturday, I, uh, I had no, no ambition to be anything, even though I was energetic and pretty smart and people wanted me to be something. <laughs> and they would tell me that I could do all sorts of things. I did actually love the theater. I remembered from doing our little children's play. I remembered, not our little children's play, but from doing the play with the school, I remembered that except for the spiritual path, I used to have a passion for theater. But somehow, I, being an actress, didn't really seem like where I was going, but it was the only thing I loved um, that could just get me moving, you know, really get me moving and sacrificing and doing all sorts of things. But, um, but I had a passion to be happy. Just, it was real simple. I really wanted to be happy. And I wanted to be happy in a very um, experiential, real way. And all of the tracks that I looked down, professionally or anything like that, which was sort of the direction, why don't you be a doctor or a professor or this or that, it sort of felt to me like, I just go down that road and where would I end up? I just wouldn't end up anywhere that I wanted to be. This is past life memories. I just had done a lot of those things and they hadn't made me happy and I, I remembered that without knowing that's what I was remembering. But I did really have it, I finally just focused in that I wanted to do something very real and I wanted, to, I wanted to make a difference to the world, and I wanted to uh, expand. And I got real interested in human love. It's a natural thing for a young woman to be interested in. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a whole bunch of children. I wanted to raise them terrifically, you know. And then that would be my meaningful contribution to the world. Now I've, I'm 53. It's too late. I've never had a baby. It's fine, because it all worked out just fine. Instead, in my mid-twenties, I found myself unmarried, committed to a monastic life, never having had a child, never planning to even marry again, what to speak of becoming the mother of the vast brood that I wanted. You know, and I had been raised Jewish, and now I was in this... It was just really unbelievable to me <laughs> that I had ended up there. What to speak of how my parents felt about it, you know? <laughs> but... Uh, and it felt, it would just be like, how did I ever end up here? But what was so fascinating to me when I really reflected on it, I mean, I'm living in this little trailer with no electricity out in the middle of, I never had been even camping, and here I am just living way out in the nowhere zone, 
And, uh, but I really started thinking about not the form of what I had wanted, but the essence of what I had wanted. And I realized that it had been an absolutely straight line, that the, even though the form had completely flipped around, what I had really wanted was, one, I had wanted love. Really, I wanted love. But I, I, I wanted love on a very fulfilling level, and so I finally figured out that was God's love I was looking for. I also felt very cramped. It's the only way I can think of it. That's why I wanted to have a family and make a contribution. I wanted to get bigger, so I, wanted to just, I was going to just multiply. I was going to be fruitful and multiply, you know? <laughs> But what? But it wasn't even really that I wanted children. It's that I wanted to be bigger. You know, I just wanted to be more. And of course, what was really confining me was my ego. And I just kept running into the edges of myself. And I realized that I had found a way to try to genuinely get bigger by expanding consciousness. And the third was more obvious, which is I just simply wanted to do good. You know, to somehow make a contribution. And the only contribution that I had been able to think of that didn't feel like it could be corrupted by the world around me was if I had my own little family. I mean, this is a myth, but, you know, I had my own little family that I would control and I would make them all wonderful. And, and there was a point at which that dream began to waffle a little when I realized that merely giving birth to a child does not make you a good mother. It was like a real, like, scary moment when I began to see that, that it wouldn't make me any better than I was before. Um, but, but it was, that was all. And that was actually, from my earliest memory, that was really all I wanted. And so it just, everything changed, but in fact nothing changed. And so it's, it's a very interesting exercise to just look back and ask yourself, what are the real threads of my life, of your lives? You know, not, not all the forms of it, but what are the real threads? And that's one of the ways you get a simple, uncluttered life, is that you keep the threads really clear. I know um, I, I was married when I was 19. I went with my first husband to Ananda. Shortly after we got there, we, we separated. He stayed for a while and went on his path. He became a disciple of Ananda Muyama. Um, I stayed at Ananda as a monastic for eight or nine years. Then David came into the scene there, and that was the end of my monastic life. And I've married to him ever since. Where is the point I was going to make here? Um, Oh, yes. Between those two marriages, I never planned to marry at all. But I also wanted to think about why that first marriage hadn't worked and just understand what was really important to me. And you sort of, you know, have all these ideas about what's really important, what a person has to be like, and so on and so on. I spent a long time really understanding what I would call what my bottom line was for life. I, I thought of it in terms of why hadn't that marriage worked and could any marriage ever work for me. I was also talking myself out of marriage because I never wanted to marry again. And I did. I talked myself out of marriage until I met David. Um, but I just realized that I'm really about a very few, just a few things. I'm about the absolute freedom to be as selfless as I am capable of being, which means there can't be anybody in my life who, who tells me that I can't give it away, whatever it is. I mean, that was how it really came down to, my money, my time, whatever it is. And I'm about Swami Kriyananda. I can't have anyone in my life who interferes with that relationship. Then I just couldn't go any further. 
But also, if you really get it down to that, you think it's about a lot of other things, whether it's relationships or your job. You, you may think it's about a lot of things, but if you really get down to it, you'll, if, you, if you take the trouble, you can get it down to very few. And if you can get it down to very few, then it's not so hard to know what to do and it's not so hard to keep your magnetism straight because if this is, if this is in conformance with it, then I have to do it. You know. Does that make sense? That's that very, that very simple phrase, the simple uncluttered life. It's better to give. You know, that's this is what we're working with in these ideas today. But just, this is also comes out of my just reading there, the natural direction is toward expansion. But we don't always know how to focus that expansion, how to concentrate it. And so if you, if you can just unclutter your sense of self and get it down to the real essential elements, stay, stay true to those, and then everything else takes care of itself. Whatever form it takes after that, it'll work. If you violate those, you'll always be a little mixed up and won't quite know where you are with things. You know, even just, you know, Henry's very practical question, do I fight the landlord or not? Well, how does that fit in with my real values and my real objectives? You know, and you, it may or may not, depending on what you're working with, but every situation can be weighed that way and it becomes much simpler. All right? Any other questions or thoughts? Then you are released. Good night. Thank you. <laughs> and also a little more of an emphasis on that singular reality inside. So um, when you sing with full energy, we let you sing. Okay. <laughs> oh, this will be a song of the night meal.
Yeah. 